welcome to Meet the Contenders, a podcast to introduce donors, activists, and volunteers to Democratic candidates running for offices all over the country and who will need our support to win. Today we'll be meeting with Savannah Gardner, who is a student running as a Democrat in Utah's 3rd District. In our interview, Savannah talks about her progressive values and her plans to summon millennial energy and grassroots support from across the district to bring together a winning campaign. Savannah's campaign is just getting started, so we're excited to get this opportunity to introduce her to you. Hi, I'm Shauna Bray, and I'm here with my colleague, Jamie Lynn Crofts, who is a civil rights attorney in West Virginia, and we have with us Savannah Gardner, who is running for Utah's third. Savannah, we'd love to know more about who you are and the district you're hoping to represent. Yeah, so I am, obviously I'm Savannah. Um, I'm 29 years old. I have three kids, and my husband's actually a disabled veteran, so uh, we've been back in Utah. We both grew up here, but we've been back in Utah um, about two and a half years, and kind of being back here and being more involved um, politically, we've kind of both seen uh, the downfalls of where Utah as a state is falling behind, as well as where the country's kind of failing, and so I kind of decided it's time to get in there and be the change that I was hoping to see over these last couple of years. What made you decide to get in politics more specifically, and, and were you involved in politics in any way in the past? Um, I wasn't ever directly involved in politics. Um, this last election season, uh, I was pregnant the entire time. So at nine months pregnant, I did actually work the exit polls. Um, and I'm a poli-sci minor, uh, Utah Valley University here in the district. But I haven't actually ever been... Um, on the ground, going at the grassroots level before. Um, I've always wanted to be in politics and I've studied policymaking and kind of what it will take and really kind of looked into what issues are being forgotten because I feel like there's a lot of bait and switch and we're led to believe that certain issues are a problem when in reality we've got much bigger problems and we see that a lot here in Utah with air quality uh, versus some other issues that aren't as big of a deal that are kind of being put in the limelight so that we believe that they're a big deal. And so kind of realizing that the politicians that we have are just that, they're politicians. They're not real people understanding the real issues that are plaguing the young generations and everyone in the nation today. You raise a couple of very important issues that we definitely want to circle back to. One thing I wanted to ask you about, though, before we move on is Utah is often considered a traditionally conservative state, and the religious makeup of your district is a bit different than right-leaning districts outside of Utah. How do you engage with the religious diversity inside the third district? That is a very good question. So, I mean, I do live in a um, very conservative state. However, if you look at how uh, progressive candidates such as Bernie Sanders did over this last election, I mean, he won Utah, um, I believe it was over 70% here in Utah. So there is that that push for progress that um, conservative young conservatives especially are wanting and they're not I, I feel like a lot more um, citizens in Utah are not wanting to be put in the box of conservative or liberal liberal um, it's more of a fluid movement to people in Utah because they do have to reconcile their faith with their beliefs politically and so there is a lot of um, kind of trying to figure out where your faith does go um, hand in hand with politics. And so I think really focusing on the issues and realizing that you don't have to choose a candidate based off of one specific issue. It's more of finding 
the right person for your fit. So, I mean, I have, I grew up in the, um, the LDS faith here. So I understand, um, the issues that they are facing when they are looking at different political issues. And so I think kind of just speaking to them on that level of, listen, I know what you are thinking. I know what your beliefs are. Here's what we can do together to work, um, to progress as a nation, but still not betray those beliefs. Let's talk about your legislative priorities and your philosophy for governing. What has Representative Chaffetz done that you would seek to undo in office? There is, I mean, there's quite a bit. The most recent, um, <clears throat> I feel like he's really been on the spotlight with healthcare and with the uh, Bears Ears National Monument, both of those specifically. Um, with healthcare, it's not... It's not as simple as not buying a new iPhone, as we all know. And I don't think anyone saw that and thought like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Just don't buy an iPhone. Um, but, I mean, he ran in Utah on a Tea Party platform. And it was in a time when a lot of people in Utah were just looking for something different. Um, so, I mean, specifically trying to back out of the damage he's done as far as um, health care. And the, with the Bears Ears Monument, trying to push to sell off the Utah land, I mean, in order for oil companies to make a profit and for him to make a profit, it's, we need to be protecting our lands. And while he hasn't like, I mean, he's been pushing for it, but it hasn't quite fallen through yet. I think that really pushing to protect our lands from being used for oil and protecting the, um, the tribes of Utah is definitely really important as well. So I hear what you're saying about some of the things that he hasn't done well when it comes to good governing, though, can you point to any piece of legislation you've seen be introduced that you think was well-designed? By Chaffetz or by anyone? Anyone at the federal or state level. Okay, so as far as legislation goes, I feel as though um, there's been some really good bills recently um, talking about education as well as um, health care. And the, the newest health care bill is coming out. Um, there's a bunch of co-sponsors on it, but looking to expand healthcare and really move towards that single payer system is more comprehensive, I believe, than kind of the disastrous um, bills that are coming out from the other side where it is still leaving 24 million people non-covered. So I think that moving forward with single payer and the bills that have been coming out, um, I know Bernie Sanders is kind of leading that one. He's got a bunch of co-sponsors with that, uh, but that's kind of the most recent one I've seen. Um, another one, which is coming out in Utah, and it was actually just the last couple of days, is um, due to air quality in Utah, the EPA is actually uh, mandating that Utah begin to work on their emissions um, over the next two years. So there's a couple of bills that are being worked on on the state level to kind of um, manage the emissions that are coming out to try and control the air quality. Absolutely. Um, I've actually seen that by some metrics, Utah is said to have some of the worst air quality in the nation. Is there anything particular that you think the U.S. Congress could do, given the current executive branch, to try to help issues like this in Utah? Uh, one of the issues that we're seeing is that the EPA is the, I mean, they're, they're attempting to cut funding to these kind of programs um, on the federal level. They really need to start regulating what uh, emissions. So one of the proposals is actually to start regulating um, biomass burning, which is just wood, um, 
and other burning. One issue that we have here in Utah is that there is no uh, program to dispose of hazardous waste. So the options that Utah has right now is either take their hazardous waste to Colorado, which is expensive, or currently what they're doing is they're incinerating it here, which is contributing to the air quality issues. So I think really cracking down on the regulations of that and not allowing these um, hazardous waste to be burned here, as well as other kinds of emissions. But that's that's an emission that is, it's needless. We shouldn't be, when there's other better options, we shouldn't be burning cans of paint and household hazardous materials and cleaners um, just to get rid of it rather than doing it the right way. Absolutely. And one thing that you brought up uh, that I'd just like to talk a little bit about for our listeners is the Bears Ear Monument. Um, and as we discussed in our last episode, that's 13 million acres of land in Utah that President Obama designated as monuments during his final days in office. How, what what to you would be a win in this issue? We, we've seen that President Trump may uh, no longer protect the land. And how, how would you like to see this controversy resolved? So one of the issues with the Bears Ears Monument is that other representatives are coming out um, trying to say that the tribes aren't even wanting this land protected and that it's bad for the economy. But if you look at the economy in that area, there are other reasons. It's not monuments that are making people flee the area. It's other issues such as the education system, um, and other issues that are having them leave. It's not that there's a national monument that's causing people to leave. Um, the representatives in Utah, I believe it was Rob Bishop earlier today, actually came out and said that the tribes are not wanting this to go through and they don't want these protections and they want it just to be restored back to the local levels. But with the, the issue with that is that then we are faced with selling off our land for, for different profit. Um, and speaking with people here directly in Utah. This is land that we all use for recreational purposes. We use it for, I mean, for tribal purposes. There's so many reasons that people are using this land. And to take away the designation that is protecting it right now, um, simply to possibly profit from it is a terrible prospect. So I think definitely just keeping the protections that are on it um, and just ensuring that the land is is left there for the people to use. Absolutely. So another thing that has been pretty loud, I think, on at least on the national level recently, has been the Trump administration's first hundred days. And there have been reports that immigration, both legal and illegal to the U.S., um, has dramatically curtailed. What type of impact do you think this will have on Utah's communities and businesses? Utah is very diverse. There's quite a bit of immigration. Uh, moving here in the in 2000, I noticed it immediately that there's a very high Hispanic population here in Utah. I don't... I, I don't see, I mean, the people of Utah, they, they embrace this diversity. Um, I do see that uh, there's more people leaving the country than coming in right now, which current, I think is an issue because we do, we thrive as a country when we have diversity. Uh, we're not a country who can thrive and progress even further if we are looking to just expand the people that are already here. We need to allow immigrants who are here to pave a way to um, 
to being citizens. There's no reason that we should be deporting mothers and fathers and leaving their children here when there's other options. And there, there's, I mean, with one of the things that they had started with the Trump administration is, or I guess they revamped it, was that hotline where you could um, talk about crimes that have been committed by uh, undocumented aliens. And this is this is another issue of trying to paint a target on someone's back where it shouldn't be. So I think just embracing the diversity and going with it is probably the best thing we as a country can do because we thrive with diversity, not with without it. I absolutely agree. Um, another thing that's somewhat related to that is that the Department of Justice under Attorney General Jeff Sessions has indicated that it may back off some of the consent de- decrees that the DOJ entered into during the Obama administration. To give the listen- our listeners some background, these consent decrees aim to address constitutional and civil rights violations by local police departments around the country. What would you do through your legislative agenda or otherwise to address unjust law enforcement practices? So one of the biggest issues with unjust law enforcement practices is that there, there isn't training in place to uh, in, ensure that the police forces are trained in any kind of situation. So we have seen in cities where they have taken this on to properly train police forces um, in instances such as uh, coming across someone with any sort of mental disability or mental handicap um, and making sure that they are trained properly, it has significantly decreased the cases in which violence is has to take route. And so I think the main thing that we need to um, start with is training. We need to train these officers the correct way to approach someone. Uh, the other thing we need to do is we need to ensure that when there is an incident, such as uh, the one that just happened a couple days ago, we need to make sure that they there's an impartial party that is looking into these cases. We can't have um, the police, the, the police departments, the local departments, in, I mean, looking into one of their buddies' cases. We need to make sure that there's an impartial third party looking at it and saying, okay, what went wrong? Who did what? What needs to happen next? The current administration has continued to baffle the press, sending mixed signals to adversaries and allies alike regarding foreign policy. Do you have a firmer view on your foreign policy philosophy? Um, I mean, there's so many different countries and different uh, relationships. One of the biggest things that I see as a problem is that we are currently, I mean, waging war in different parts of the country for profit purposes, such as the different oil wars we've gone into. As far as Syria, um, and this is the same under the Obama administration, it's continuing under the Trump administration, is just hundreds of drone strikes every month. I mean, we're, we're bombing these people every day. And this, rather than bombing, that's not the way that you are able to, I mean, you're not able to fight ISIS by harming these children who are then going to grow up hating us, if that makes sense. I mean, we need to put a stop to the violence and really just kind of, figure things out on a different level because what we're doing isn't working and it's worsening the problem. Um, so as far as the Middle East, that's kind of, I mean, I know it's a very broad area. Um, but another issue that I have right now is with the Paris Agreement, with the Trump administration, they are t- 
talking about pulling out of the Paris Agreement. And I've looked into it. It will take a couple of years for them to actually do that. So the threat isn't quite as imminent. However, they don't have to follow through with the Paris Agreement, which is for renewable energy. Um, and the issue with not following through with the guidelines that we've set for ourselves with this is that we're then showing the rest of the country, hey, America is not going to go ahead and follow through with this. So do with that information what you will. And it could um, consist of other countries also not following through with this agreement or other international agreements that we have set up for each other. So I think, um, for one, I mean, when you sign up for something such as the Paris Agreement, where everyone is collectively working together, making sure that you are following through. So you've spoken to countries where we've already taken some sort of military action. How does your philosophy change when we talk about North Korea? North Korea is a difficult subject. Um, for me personally, the atrocities in North Korea are, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking to read stories of people from North Korea and know that we were not doing anything. Um, for me personally, I, it, it reminds me too much of things that had happened back in World War II when we didn't have enough incentive to go in and not only see what's happening, but, um, I mean, do something about the atrocities that are being committed. He, that Kim Jong-un is, I mean, breaking so many different international laws that we should, I mean, these are crimes against humanity that are being committed. And currently, I mean, we've just been playing a big game of chicken with them for decades. And part of the reason I believe we are doing that is because there's nothing to profit from going into North Korea. So if we're going to go in and under the guise of saving the people in different Middle Eastern countries, when in reality there's oil, we need to also be going in and saving people in countries where there are real crimes being committed against these people that have done nothing. So can I follow up on that? What what would the appropriate action look like then in North Korea or another country where we see lots of human rights and atrocities unfolding? That's a difficult one. Um, so my husband, when he was over in Afghanistan, he worked a lot with local uh, police enforcement to try and help the local people. I mean, but getting in there is the big difficult problem. And honestly, I'm not sure how we would go about doing that right now. I agree. It's a difficult subject and maybe there's no clear way out. Switching gears a little bit, how do we respond to countries that appear to be attempting to corrupt our officials? We're hearing reports out of Russia, surely, but also stories from China and other countries where they appear to be using licensing and real estate deals to corrupt people who are inside the White House. What, what's the appropriate response? Part of the issue is that we do have people in the White House who, uh, I mean, including the, the president's own children who are in on these, these meetings with um, foreign leaders, and then they're going out and signing business deals immediately afterwards. It's not only nepotism, but there is this massive corruptness. And I think the biggest thing we can do to start um, fighting this is getting rid of corporate money out of politics altogether. We shouldn't be allowing uh, businesses and politics to mix because you do see a big conflict of interest with this. And we've seen this with the Trump administration where um, in Turkey, where he's praising the leader of Turkey and he's got a bunch of hotels that are two towers, not just one, but two towers looking to go up. And it's, there's so many conflicts of interest that the lines are just so blurred at this point that you have no idea when the deal is made, who the deal was made for. And so I think the first thing we can do is just ensure that there are no um, corporations being able to buy politicians. And one of the big issues with this is um, 
allowing people to move from the private sector into the political sector immediately and kind of following through with corporations' best interests right off the bat. Money in politics is definitely a very big issue right now, particularly for the Democratic base. And you did bring up some potential ethical issues or laws that could be instituted. Short of overturning Citizens United or getting a new constitutional amendment to overturn it, what role do you think Congress could play in trying to keep money out of politics? You raise a good point. A lot of people have been talking about overturning Citizens United, but it's not that easy to overturn a Supreme Court decision. I mean, we've seen this time and time again. Um, I think on a congressional level, it all boils down to, it all starts from the bottom up. So it it begins with people electing officials who have pledged not to take corporate money. And once you have a, a large enough portion of um, Congress that is unwilling to take this dirty money, then we're able to move forward to making amendments or making rulings where it's no longer legal. But I think the best thing we can do as citizens is elect people who are unwilling to take this money in the first place. So to switch gears a little bit here, we're seeing once again that the House is trying to repeal Obamacare and the battle over allowing women on Medicare and Medicaid to use Planned Parenthood services is increasingly intensifying. What sort of approach would you take to address access to affordable healthcare services for women and just for reproductive health generally? Yeah, I see some of the arguments against Planned Parenthood, and a lot of it seems to be, other than the propaganda um, level, a lot of it is on the education level. When people understand that Planned Parenthood, for the majority, is all about women's health and men's health and cancer screenings, and they do so much good um, targeting them for the one thing you don't agree with when it's it's such a partisan issue. Um I think for women's health, though, Planned Parenthood is essential. Not only Planned Parenthood, but we need to have accessible health care, especially for women, especially for people in areas where health care is much more difficult to access, where you're having to drive hours to get the services that you need. It's, it's, it's absolutely not okay. Um, I personally am for single-payer health care, and I think moving towards a single-payer health care system is one of the best steps we can make. Um, and that's, I mean, the, the only way that we're going to be able to ensure that women are taken care of and men equally is by making sure that it, the access is universal, not state by state or city by city. We need to make sure that everyone has the same access no matter where they are in the country. So let's talk about your campaign strategies. Have you filed with the FEC yet? I have not as of yet. Right now, you're not the front runner. What resources and strategies will you utilize to catch up? So the front runner, um, Dr. Allen, she got a bit of a head start. And I feel like when um, she started, anyone people were looking for any other option other than Chaffetz, which is no longer the case. Um, obviously, it's an open seat. So a lot of people are kind of vying for that open seat and planning on elbowing each other out of the way. Me personally, there is, there's three universities right along the Wasatch Front here in the district, um, and there's a very high percentage of young voters. Currently in Congress, uh, it's about 5% are under the age of 39, and currently there's no one under the age of 30. So more than women not being represented fairly or any minorities not being represented fairly, we have an age 
a massive age bracket of 18 to 30 that's not being represented at all in Congress. And that's kind of my main focus right now is talking to young voters and people in my age bracket, fellow college students, people who I who are in my area, um, and letting them know that we we do have a voice. The issues that plague our generation, they matter. And they won't get talked about unless we have people there talking about them. So it's kind of more of a grassroots movement, um, not taking big donors, just more talking to individuals in the area and learning more about the issues that plague them that maybe I don't know about and figuring out what's important to the people here in the Wasatch Front so that we do have a universal uh, representation in Congress, because right now we definitely don't. So do you have plans to travel and get your message out inside the district? Absolutely. So I'm taking, I just finished my last finals today. I've got one more paper to write before my semester's over. And then the entire um, summer, I will be traveling through um, Northern Utah, which is where I currently live in Orem, uh, all the way down to Southern Utah to kind of visit um, the different areas, kind of talk to people and figure out, as I said, figure out what their issues in their areas are and what Congress could do for them specifically. Do you know which groups you'll be addressing? In Southern Utah, because it's the Southeastern corner, um, there's a lot of tribes down there and a lot of, um, there's quite a bit of miners. So I've got um, some plans to visit a couple of the different mining unions and talk to them, figure, because, I mean, Trump ran on a campaign of helping the miners and bringing coal back but most people understand that coal isn't going to be coming back. So I think kind of talking to them and figuring out what the next step is uh, in transitioning over to other options um, and speaking with them. So specifically, I think that visiting with some of the tribes down in Southern Utah, as well as the coal miners down there, because those are a great number down there, um, talking with them and kind of figuring out what's different from their area versus up in kind of central Utah where the hub all is. To win, you're going to have to speak directly to supporters of Jason Chaffetz. What are you going to point to to convince them that you can represent their interests? I, from what I'm noticing here, the people that voted for Chaffetz this last time just kind of voted everyone in that was in previously. He's kind, he's definitely made himself a household name over the last couple months and not for good reasons. So a lot of people do understand that he's not representative of Utah. Um, one of the big issues that I would be able to point to is healthcare where people in Utah, um, they have children and they, they are needing to pay for health coverage for these children. And a lot of children are born with preexisting conditions and having someone who's fighting against preexisting conditions or telling people in Utah that, um, they just need to be smarter with their money. When in Utah, we do have, we have a housing crisis where money wages aren't high enough for people to be renting or purchasing homes. The housing market is skyrocketing. And so there isn't a lot of extra money around. And I think pointing to his comments, especially when it comes to healthcare and just being smarter with your money is just nonchalantly painting over the problem um, and putting it back on them. So I think making sure that they know that it's not their issue and it's an issue with something that he has said is probably a very good first step. If you fail to secure the endorsement of the party at the convention, will you lend your support to the candidate who does? I believe that in Utah, it is very important to ensure that we are making progress. So if that is not me, I believe that moving forward with the the candidate that will um, 
move Utah in the form of progress is better than the status quo. So yes. You brought up minors a few times and living in West Virginia, that is something that we see all the time here is minors struggling to get by and the government not doing very much to help them. Uh, This past week, the government did pass a law that will require uh, health care to be paid to retired coal miners and will guarantee their benefits even when companies face bankruptcy. Are there any other things that you think Congress should try to do to help people who have been involved in coal mining or have lost jobs because mining is no longer such a big producer of, or such a big part of the economy in states like ours? Absolutely. So on top of making sure that we're caring for retired coal miners or in the case of bankruptcy, we need to make sure that we're caring for them across the board, which obviously goes back to single payer system. But I've seen similar things with my husband as a disabled veteran where he's covered for certain things, but not other things. And there's so many loopholes that you have to jump through in order to gain the coverage that you've earned. And I think coal miners are facing similar battles where they're trying, they're fighting and it, it almost proves to be futile because it's, what are you fighting for? You're fighting for just something that you you've earned and you've given your health and part, I mean, you've given your health and your physical well-being to this job. And so I think making sure that we're taking care of them on a on a health level and on a physical level is the first step. Uh, the next step I would say uh, goes to making the transition. Um, if we're going to be 100% renewable energy by 2050, we need to start making the transition. And the best way we can do that is taking workers in like the coal industry and the oil industry and training them into these other industries where they would be able to um, easily transition over and not be kind of left in the dust wondering, what do I do now? Absolutely. Um, I think that we are just about ready to wrap up here. Uh, But before we do so, is there anything else that you would like to know, you would like to let voters and other interested people know about you or your campaign? Yeah. I mean, my, my biggest thing is that um, millennials, especially in Utah and across the nation, are only wanting a fighting chance. And currently, they're not given a fighting chance. And so I think with things such as healthcare and um, different free college programs that are put into place, it's able to, and raising the minimum wage to at least $15 an hour, which I've worked for $15 an hour and it's not enough to raise a family on. So I don't consider it a living wage. I do consider it a step in the right direction. We need to be fighting for for women's rights, for obviously for men's rights as well, but they're kind of a step ahead of us already. But making sure that there's equal representation and that the issues that are important to the average everyday American are being talked about in Washington because right now they're not being talked about. So I'm all about the issues. And if anyone does want to come to my Facebook page um, or my website, I will gladly talk about issues all day long. Wonderful. So on that note, if our listeners do want to donate or volunteer or learn more about you, where should they go? So I am on Facebook and it is, if you search, um, it's Savannah Gardner, which is G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. But if you search it on, like for, um, to search it, it's just SAV for Congress, which is S-A-V and then for Congress. Uh, it pulls up. I'm also at the same handle on Twitter um, and then savannahgardner.com. And I do have a crowd pack 
uh, campaign currently going right now for fundraising. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it and good luck. Awesome. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Meet the Contenders. I'm your producer, Shauna Bright, and I'd like to thank contributors Aymara Ledesma, Jamie Lynn Crofts, Yelena Kovich, and Jennifer Winter. Please join us in the coming weeks and support Rob Quist in his May 9th bid for Montana's at-large congressional seat, John Ossoff in Georgia's 6th race runoff on June 20th, and keep an eye on South Carolina's 5th District, June 20th special election for Mick Mulvaney's seat, and then later Virginia's statehouse races coming up on November 7th.